Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. More than half of American adults and more than 75% of young Americans believe in intelligent extraterrestrial life. This level of belief rivals that of belief in God. In American Cosmic, Professor Diana Pasulka examines the mechanisms at work behind the thriving belief system in extraterrestrial life, a system she asserts is changing and even supplanting traditional religions. Over the course of a six-year ethnographic study, Paselka interviewed successful and influential scientists, professionals, and Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who believe in extraterrestrial intelligence, thereby disproving the common misconception that only fringe members of society believe in UFOs. She argues that widespread belief in aliens is due to a number of factors, including their ubiquity in modern media such as the X-Files, which can influence memory and the believability lent to that media by the search for planets that might support life. American Cosmic explores the intriguing question of how people interpret unexplainable experiences and argues that the media is replacing religion as a cultural authority that offers believers answers about non-human intelligent life. Diana Walsh-Pasulka is a professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and chair of the Department of Philosophy and Religion. Her research focuses on religion and technology, including supernatural belief and its connections to digital technologies and environments. She is also a history and religion consultant for movies and television, including The Conjuring from 2013. She's here with me today to discuss her latest book, American Cosmic. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Secularism. My name is Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Professor Diana Paselka to talk about her book, American Cosmic. Diana, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, Carrie. Thank you for inviting me. So just to start, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field. Sure. So I've been interested in um, religion and philosophy as a, you know, a kid, really, and um, majored in philosophy, religious studies as an undergraduate in California. And I also um, went to graduate school for philosophy and religious studies during the dot-com boom in Silicon Valley. And so I was also fascinated by how we were entering as a global society, a new era, and how, you know, um, the the new kind of digital infrastructures that were you know cropping up all around us you know what impact they had on the ways in which we thought about the ultimate kinds of questions that we ask in religions and philosophy you know about life and the transcendent and things like that because it's my understanding and belief that uh, you know, religions are like everything else. They kind of emerge out of uh, conditions and infrastructure. So I, to, so that's, I use the UFO belief as a case study to identify how the new infrastructure was going to be changing how we thought of the transcendent. So next, I want to ask you about how you came to write this particular book. Yes. So I was, I, I am actually a historian of Catholic culture and what you know, I had written this book about purgatory and I had the same idea there. It was that, you know, purgatory is this or had been for, you know, 
1500 years, this idea and dogma within the Catholic Church that there were these souls after you die, your soul goes to, you know, a number of different places, one of which could be hell, one of which could be heaven. But if your soul is not too bad and, you know, uh, <laughs> it can be purified in this place called purgatory. And so throughout Europe during the Middle Ages up through until about the 1800s, um, actually, even further than that, into the 1900s, uh, there, you know, there were places in Catholic churches where people would go to pray for their souls and their, you know, their ancestors and souls in purgatory. And in, after the 1960s and this this council called Vatican II, that devotion and practice just kind of fell off the map. And I thought, well, why was that? And what I found was that it had a lot to do with the infrastructure and material culture of the, you know, the ba basically I had to, I thought this was just going to be a book that was strictly about 18th and 19th century Catholicism, but I really had to go back to how the dogma was formed. And that took me back to the 1200s when I realized that there were these caves of purgatory and people actually would go, and there's actually still one in Ireland. It's, uh, you don't go into the cave anymore. They built a church on it, but it's at this lake called Loch Derg in Ireland. And people would actually go to these places to um, do ascetic practices that were called purgations. And purgatory really kind of emerged from physical places and physical practices. And so, um, so as I was doing this book, and again, this was also an Oxford book, and as I did this book, I kept coming upon report. You know, I was working in archives, and I kept coming upon reports of aerial phenomena and things in the sky and things that people couldn't interpret. Were they angels or what were they? And I thought this is very odd. So I kept a log of these things and I wrote them down in a, in a big list. And I kept the list, and I only put one or two of these in the book because I wasn't quite sure they were they they happened throughout the history of. Of Catholicism, and uh, in, in European and even in um, American Catholicism, and um, you know Central American Catholicism, and so I was, I thought, wow, this is such an incredible, you know, this is such a pattern that I'm going to maybe look at this next, and so, but I didn't really know what to think about it, so. I frankly have never thought of UFOs, uh, was a complete atheist with respect to UFOs, and never, ever thought I'd write about them. But I showed my list to a colleague one day. We were having coffee, and he looked through the list, and, you know, he gave it some thought, and he said, I don't know, it just looks like UFO stuff to me, you know, like Steven Spielberg movies. And I thought he was crazy, and I th said, get out of here. But then the more I looked at it, the, the more I thought, that is kind of a strange coincidence. And there was a UFO conference in the area that week, actually. So I attended it. And when I attended it, I heard reports that were very similar to the Catholic report. So what I decided to do was kind of an analysis of, you know, I read up then on UFO experiencers and, you know, how, what they experienced and things like that. And I basically did, you know, about two years of intensive research into what people, scholars, and all kinds of people had said about these things. And then I went back to sources from the Catholic tradition and looked at those two and tried to come up with a responsible way, not an ancient aliens way to look at this. You know, say, oh, you know, they were UFOs back then and, you know, they're UFOs now, but nothing like that. But just to kind of explain how, how we frame these kinds of inexplicable experiences. 
And so that's what brought me to the book. Now, having said that, when I got into the book, I thought it would be a pretty straightforward analyses, but it got complicated because of the type of people I met. So I thought I was going to meet you know, people that were somewhat like me, kind of like ordinary people who see anomalous things in the sky and report them and then talk about them and that type of thing. I have not, but just to, you know, give, give you a sense of who I thought I'd be talking to. I did not expect to, to come across a whole cadre of scientists who were actually believed that they were, you know, that they had in their possession objects that were anomalous objects extraterrestrial objects and that they were actually used in inspiring them to uh, create technologies. And these were not, you know, just your, you know, you're like a scientist in the basement doing this work on his own. Um, these are actually people at mainline universities, like the, some of the top five universities and people who are multimillionaires and even billionaires who were doing this. So there was a whole circle of these people that I kind of, decided that I would write about them to begin just to show that, you know, the common understanding that is, you know, oh, there's something kind of a little bit off with a person who talks about UFOs or sees them. But actually, these were very successful, high functioning people. Yeah, that's right. That that really is surprising because you're right. Most people do think of the people that are believers as somewhat of cranks or something. But yes, you met quite a few people with very impressive jobs, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. <laughs> so you start um, with a, a story about your scientist colleagues, James and Tyler, and uh, you went into the desert and found what they called some artifacts. And you compared... Uh, those artifacts, finding those artifacts in the desert to something like a religious miracle. So maybe let's start with this experience and tell us why you interpret it in this way. Sure. So now you have to understand that this was very far out of my comfort zone as a historian of Catholicism. So um, I started to meet people who were affiliated with different uh, programs. And, um, and I thought this I just don't really want to get into this type of thing. So I put uh, one of the uh, one of the people was Tyler, and he asked me to go out to New Mexico. And he said that he was interested in the historical occurrences that re that were very similar to the contemporary experiences. And he's a, he was affiliated with you know the space industry, and so he wanted to to meet and to go do this. And I was I was suspicious of this person, so I kind of actually put him off for about two years. And then finally, I said, I will go, but I need to take somebody with me because I was, <laughs> the condition to going was being blindfolded because it's a, it's a place that I'm not supposed to know where it is. It's a, it's a place where he thought what it, he believed it was a UFO crash site. So I asked my friend who is a, um, molecular, a molecular biologist and, um, a highly um, well-known and qualified scientist to go with me. And he said, yes. And so um, what I believed I was doing was, you know, in religions, there are places that are called sacred places, places of hierophanies. And a hierophany is literally uh, an appearance of the sacred. Like, the, like, you know, when Moses saw God in a bush, right? 
um, on Mount Sinai, that's a, called a hierophany. And so I was thinking in my mind, I wasn't in any way a believer. And I told them that I said, I don't, I don't know, you know, I'm just going with you so I could understand why you believe this. And they said, no problem. And so I was going to kind of just observe really. And, um, I call it a religious experience because they believe that this is these items are sacred. They believe that they're donations to us, maybe not good donations, maybe maybe good donations. They were not entirely sure, but they they've done studies on them and they found them to be highly sophisticated objects. And so to me, I compared it to the appearance of the sacred for them, okay? And also another thing that happened was that while I was there, I took off the first thing that happened was I took off my blindfold and I looked around and the place looked really familiar. And Tyler noticed that. And he said, um, it looks familiar, doesn't it? And I said, well, yeah, but I've not been here before. And he said, it's a, it's one of the scenes from the X-Files. And I said, what? He said, you know, it's, it's the opening scene of the last X-Files and I thought, he goes, maybe they had somebody on, like an insider on their on their production crew. And I thought, wow. So, you know, what I was really doing was I was showing how media technologies impact how we view the transcendent and the sacred. So I knew I was at the right place at the right time. Not only was I viewing these scientists who are basically atheists themselves pretty much, you know, looking at these things as sacred objects, almost like sacred relics, which are all over religious, you know, religions. But also here we have the, the, you know, media coming in and basically, you know, people all over the world kind of like having this belief that they're, you know, this is kind of the X-Files. There was a study done by, I think it was National Geographic. And they said, if, if people thought there were aliens or they were here on earth, what would it be like? And most people said the X-Files. So I thought that was really interesting. So I thought I'm just standing on ground zero of this myth, mythology, you know, burgeoning religion. So next you write about the group in the field, which you call an international study group of trained videographers, photographers, and graphic designers who study the UFO phenomenon on a regular basis. So please tell us more about this group and the others who are taking the study of the UFO phenomenon very seriously. Sure. So this is a really great group on Facebook. You have to actually apply to get into it. And it's um, it was began by Scott Brown, and he is um, he's um, what is I don't know exactly what the title of his job is, but he is uh, he does a lot of graphic design and videography, and so he knows a lot about what constitutes what's called CGI, so computer generated imagery and Photoshop techniques. So he actually did find something that was an anomalous object that he photographed and um, he's had experiences. And a lot of people in the group have a similar background as to what he does. He does not want people in the group that are going to, you know, pass around faked photographs or faked videos and that type of thing. So, you know, here you have in this group, a, a, tr a highly trained group of people that from all over the world that are identifying anomalous aerial objects and 
Also, what they're doing is they're identifying the faked ones out there and they're outing them. And so I thought this was a really interesting group. So I spent some time with him. I actually traveled to New Hampshire and um, we met at a coffee shop and we talked for the whole day for the most part. And, you know, I found out how he started the group, why he wanted to start the group and what, you know, he was a, you know, this was a group of people who were actually believers, but it, it you know, there was so much hype out there about faked stuff that they were spending a lot of time basically just showing how a lot of things were, were not true. So this is kind of an interesting story within that chapter. So uh, while I was part of the group, I'm not part of social media anymore, but while I was part of that group, um, this happened. So there was uh, somebody who had taken a picture of a Mylar balloon and they photoshopped it to look odd and then they passed it off as a ufo and this this picture generated millions of people who went to the site and so what scott did was he took it and he basically showed exactly how it was you know he kind of deconstructed the process by which it was created into a ufo and so he presented it to the people in the group and the people in the group it it, there's a very famous book called um Oh gosh, how come I can't remember the name? It was it was in the 1950s and it was about these sociologists from Stanford who infiltrated a UFO group and they wanted to see what happened. The UFO group believed that the end of the world was going to happen and it didn't, and they wanted to see what would happen. It was a, it was a study in cognitive dissonance, right? So what you believe is going to happen doesn't happen, then how what happens after that? So this was a, this was a case study right in front of my eyes. So basically a lot of the people in the group said, well, UFOs can disguise themselves as, as anything they want. So here they're disguising themselves as these balloons. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting. <laughs> That's interesting. Oh, yeah, that definitely is. Um, and that actually leads me to my, my next question, because you explain in the book that after some time in reflection, you decided your job was to document the formation of a new religious form, rather than to try and determine the reality of the phenomena it's formed around. So tell us about your thought process there. Well, I don't think it's possible. I do think there are... Um, Things in the sky, we don't understand. They could be anything, you know. Um, I think a Harvard professor recently just said that there's some kind of galactic uh, thing going that was created by something intelligent and it's kind of, you know, traversing our galaxy. And um, I do think that there are things out there that we just don't know what they are, but that's only probably 1% of what's out there. A lot of the things we see out there are like drones or, you know, uh, meteorites or, you know, things like that. Um, so, however, that doesn't mean that religious forms don't, uh, you know, aren't created around those things. Okay. Because they certainly are. And so what my, I, you know, in religious studies, we generally don't weigh in unless you're in the philosophy of religion, which is a subfield that does actually weigh in on the objective reality of religious phenomena. Um, I don't do that, right? What I do is I basically show how beliefs, dogmas, practices are created through their environments. And what I do is I when you know, I think if you like the Mylar balloon thing, I think if you can show how this is going on, I think what that does is it allows people to understand that belief is something that's co-created with your environment it's it's not necessarily it's like there's a famous um 
scholar who says uh, of memory, who says that, you know, memory is like a Wikipedia <laughs> page. You know, it kind of is this thing that is constantly changing. And so this is how religion is too. It's constantly changing, constantly interacting with its environment. And, you know, members of religious traditions think that their religion started as they are and just kind of, you know, went along and, you know, and it's not the case. So I guess what I did was I wanted to show how media technologies and technologies in general were, were creating this new framework for understanding something that we believe to be non-human intelligence that comes down from the sky. And here's an example of that. So I teach students and I have uh, – often they go on study abroad in Italy and they go to Florence museums or the Vatican and they'll see these, you know, paintings that their grandparents would have looked at. Say, let's take the example of St. Francis of Assisi. And he's one of the, the uh, people who received a stigmata, you know, the wounds of Christ. And he received it from an aerial object in the sky. And so their grandparents, this, my students' grandparents would go to their to the museum. They'd see the painting. And that what they would see would be an angel uh, zapping St. Francis with the wounds of Christ. Okay. What my students see when they go, they say, Oh, that's a UFO. And that, that UFO is zapping St. Francis. And so they, they take pictures of that and they send that to me. And so, you know, it's, why do we now believe that? Why is that our first go-to interpretation? Well, obviously because we grew up with Star Wars and, you know, Independence Day and things like that. So, you know, our whole, we just don't give credit to how media technologies prime us to understand uh, things that we think are immutable and th and forever, right? So, so I wanted to kind of show that in the book, and that's why I changed. That's why I shifted to just basically focusing on that. That leads me to my next question as well, because in your next chapter, you talk about how people often confuse fictional events, such as those they see in movies, like you've mentioned, with real events, even though sometimes they know they're watching fictional things that, that will still get mixed up uh, in their perception of reality. And you explain that this is a trick of how our memories work. So maybe explain this to us, this phenomenon a little bit more and how that particularly influences belief in the existence of aliens or the development of real religions based on fictions like we see with the Jedi religion coming out of Star Wars even. Exactly. So in the last 20 years, um, my field is, it's, an, it's a relatively um, new field, but it's also an interdisciplinary field. So we have archaeologists, historians, sociologists, all working together to, to understand, you know, religion. And religion is really important in our world. I mean, look at most people in the world believe in, they are religious. So, you know, we've got to come to terms with that. Rationalism has not gotten rid of religion. Okay, so why is that? And how are religions changing? So within the last 20 years, new categories of religion have been, um, we have identified them. And one is called the fiction. There are traditional religions like Christianity and Judaism and Islam. You know, these are kind of the traditional religions that people in the United States and Canada are aware of. And then there are these religions of, uh, we call them fiction-based religions. And these religions have emerged within, I'd say, the last 30 years and 40 years. And they, uh, a lot of them come from um, science fiction and star, you know, media like Star Wars and things like that. Now, why? So I had a great opportunity 
in 2012 to work with we I live in a place that had a very uh, vibrant film industry and uh, the conjuring was the first conjuring was going to be filmed here and so they they reached out to me and asked me if I would help them uh, it was about two catholic a catholic couple that are demonologists right and so uh, they and based quote unquote on true events so they wanted me to consult with them and so and especially help them with their latin because they were going to try to make it as realistic as possible and so to me i had just written an article about how um, when you take something that looks like a documentary and you say it's based on a real event, but it's completely fictional, you know, what you're, what you're doing is you're really tricking the mind here into think, you know, like um, if I told you to think about a lemon, right? And I spend a lot of time saying that, what does that lemon taste like? You're going to, your mouth is going to, you know, do something physiologically, right? So what's happening to us is that and what I got to see throughout the editing process of The Conjuring from its, you know, I got to see it being filmed. I got to see it, you know, they were writing it as they were going along. And I got to see then the editing process and how they go through a process of taking out scenes that don't light up your brain, you know, because they do this this now this cognitive um analyses of scenes where they do test audiences where they, you know, hook them up to EKGs and that kind of thing. And they, they, uh, they take the scenes that make you most, um, light up your brain the most, I guess, you know, kind of like when you eat sugar, your, you know, all your taste buds light up. So what they're doing is they're creating this kind of like, almost like a quasi drug type thing. And so, um, that fascinated me. That's always fascinated me. So I had this kind of real life uh, example that I was able to, you know, see this process at work. And I, and that's when I started to read a lot about neuroscience and memory and the create and movies and there. And I want to plug Jeffrey Zach's book called your life on, or your mind on movies. And um, it's a great book that explains in depth how, when, you know, we see a very, very visual, a very, uh, you know, uh, visceral, really, um, movie about a historical event, we're going to believe the movie rather than the actual, you know, how the event was actually created and, you know, recorded. So, you know, so what we're doing here, and there's a genre now uh, called specialist factual that is a lot of production companies use this where, you know, they recreate dinosaurs and things like that so that, and a lot of this is targeted to young people, by the way, as documentaries. So do you see how many things we have going on there that are like, um, in a sense, messing with the common categories that say, Carrie, you and I grew up with, where there was, you know, fact and fiction. And that's just not a meaningful framework anymore when we're talking about the type of media in which we live, like immersive medias. Yeah, I know what you mean. I couldn't help but also think about the show Unsolved Mysteries, which was quite the thing when I was younger. I used to watch that with my dad. And I think it did some of that genre confusion that you're talking about, because that show present, as far as I remember, really presented uh, the topics it was uh, and the stories as real things that happened to real people. And I think there's there were elements of truth mixed in there, but I I don't know. I think that it went way beyond the actual truth, oftentimes too. But it really presented it as if it was like historical fact, real fact, and. 
being a young person, I mean, I was probably 10, 11, 12 when I was watching that. I really bought a lot of it, you know, just out of naivety. Um, And it shocked me later to learn how brazen they were with the truth or what they claim, you know, but... It's it's shocking to me now, to tell you the truth. Um, I was on an Oxford podcast, and it was about this very idea of how media represents the past and history and that type of thing. And, you know, how much can we play with it? And I basically said, you know, if you go back and you actually read history, it doesn't really need any embellishment. It really doesn't need to be changed. I mean, it's horrible enough. You know, if you want some drama, just go read the original sources and you don't have to make them up. I mean, (laughs) so, um, so yeah, so there's a, there's a lot that was shocking to me and, um, and I wanted people to know it. And so I thought, you know, if I put, if I use the UFO as an example, that was the best example I could find because who's seen a real UFO, you know, well, these scientists say they have, but I mean, who's actually, you know, who's actually seen an alien. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is we have these categories for things that could very well be pink unicorns, you know, but we're like, we're, we're assuming that they're, you know, when that, that thing came out about the national geographic study that said, you know, what would, uh, you know, an alien look like, you know, an alien invasion look like, well, it would look like the X-Files. Well, how would we even know that? <laughs> Well, you actually, you also talk about the role of the absurd in the formation of new religions, uh, pointing out that some of what is now taken for granted in Christian practice, for example, seemed absurd initially to the Romans. Um, And you go so far as to claim that some religions, in fact, intentionally cultivate the absurd as part of their practice. So what's going on here? What's behind this strategy? Sure. So this is a great um, analysis, and it is um, suggested by... Jacques Vallée, who's very interesting, by the way, and he is an astronomer and also a a computer scientist, and he lives in Silicon Valley and has been um, one of the Silicon Valley, like, major players, I guess, for many years since the 1960s and 70s, and he's always been, he's a a very well-known, like, he was the person who's the French uh, professor in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That character was was uh, of Jacques Vallée, and so um, when when people in the Americas, okay, think of religions, we tend to think of our own religion, be it Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. We tend to think of our own religion as what a religion looks like, but actually. There are thousands of different types of religions, some even of Christian denominations, some of which don't even look like each other. So when I'm talking about the absurd, I'm referencing something like Zen Buddhism. So in Zen Buddhism, uh, the idea is not to believe in a God. There is no God in, in Zen Buddhism. And that so, you know, that shocks a lot of my students because they're like, wow, don't isn't that what a religion is? Is a belief in a God? Like, isn't it a theistic kind of thing? And I said, no, we have to understand that there are that religions are not what we think they are just because they look like this to us. So in Zen Buddhism, they have practices of meditation that cause us to try to release 
how we see things, release our dogmas, release our frameworks for looking at things so that we can be in the present moment. And so a lot of times what the masters of Zen would do would be to cultivate something absolutely absurd that would be so absurd as to cause us to, to stop rationally thinking and then to allow another type of thinking of, you know, another state of mind and being to dominate. And that's what they would call Satori or a type of uh, mystical experience. Okay. So you interviewed many scientists, as you mentioned, who are also believers in UFOs as alien contact. And you found that they, they see so-called experiencers, which is what they call these people who have, um, uh, who believe they've had contact with UFOs as performing a technological function. So these experiencers are like receivers and transmitters of information. So explain to us what that means. Sure. So the scientist, uh, the main scientist who was talking to me about this was Tyler. And Tyler basically believes that our DNA um, receives data as well as transmits data. And so he said that what happens to, we're radios basically. And he said that um, if we are open and allow, you know, and he had a whole protocol for living. Like he had, you know, he does um, extensive practices like yoga. He sleeps a lot and he takes care of his body. He doesn't drink a lot. He doesn't drink coffee and he goes out in the sun and he, he basically stays away mostly from technology, even though he creates biotechnologies, which is um, ironic. However, um, so he believes that if we do this, we can actually receive information then that can help us in our lives. And so I spent a lot of time asking him a little bit about that. And that that idea came up a lot, like with Ray Hernandez and even the astronaut Edgar Mitchell. This idea that we are if if there are like, you know, SETI is the uh, search for extraterrestrial life. Right. So they're putting out these signals and stuff. And so, you know. I talked to Edgar Mitchell, the astronaut, and I also talked to Tyler, and both of them said, we're the signals. You know, we're the radio transmitters. We're the ones that can can um, have uh, contact experiences. So that's what, the, that's what that's about. That's what they believe. So does that mean that they think that when people believe that they're experiencing alien contact – are they thinking that it's just a projection that they're picking up through their bodies as a radio transmitter then? Is that kind of the idea or? Well, no, what they do is they differentiate it. So there's a very specific um, feeling one gets and they actually, I mean, each of them that I talked to almost said the same thing. They said that, and I, and they didn't know each other and I interviewed them separately and they, and they said, we're not, you know, the tinfoil type hat people who say, oh, I'm getting, you know, these, you know, receptions from, you know, whatever this is happening to me. They basically said that they, they knew when a thought popped into their head that was not their own thought and that that was going to be important and that they would act on that. And if they did act on it and it, and a lot of times it would turn out to be uh, the germ of a biotechnology or, or a thought that could turn into something that would be like knowledge or something like that. And they would do a paper on it or something like that. So, um, and they, they all kind of said this, which then started me on a whole 
you know, then I started to learn about creativity and reading books about creativity. Now, of course, I can't spend forever on this book, but then I thought, wow, you know, I think what these guys are experiencing is a very specific form of creativity because what I learned, and I do, I can't remember the the, the uh, woman's name who does this, the scholar's name, but she studies creativity and what she said, and it's in the book, if people are interested, there's her, the references there, is that she says that the executive function, like the, the brain brain kind of shuts down. And a lot of times, super highly creative people believe that their ideas are coming from ex- the externally to themselves, like they're getting external information. And so, and she's, you know, what she's doing is EKGs on them. So she's looking at their brains while they're being incredibly inc- creative. And I thought that perhaps this was happening to these men. However, they were interpreting them as basically UFO contact. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, and I can see how that would be parallel to the religious idea that you would get inspiration from above, so to speak, the Holy Spirit working through you, those kinds of concepts. Oh, yeah, or even the Greek muses and things like that. Oh, yes, sure. Yeah, this idea that this amazing idea I've had is too big for me. It must have come from outside. Yeah, external. I mean, this woman is actually doing the research on highly creative people and basically saying what I saw you know, empirically. So she's confirming, she believes she's finding some kind of empirical evidence for this kind of outside influence? Oh, no, no, no. She's saying that it's just an internal experience. (laughs) No, no, she's not saying there's an external muse, right? That muse is not the meta, you know, like there's this non-metaphorical muse out there. No, no, she's saying that when highly creative people are going through these processes that they believe that that you know and she can show how one part of the brain is is kind of shutting down and other parts of the brain are lighting up okay and that uh, this, this appears to be something external to to these people and they believe that it's external they all have that same feeling so that can't be it, it's not a coincidence let's put it that way now i don't delve into it a lot in the book because i just i had read the book and i thought wow this correlates to my my own empirical experience of you know t- studying these people, and I'm wondering if you know there were further analyses of people who are highly you know creative, you know what what they would think if they learned you know that uh, Ramanujan, right, the very very famous uh, mathematician who's who's so brilliant. People are just figuring out his his theorems, and he died. Uh, oh gosh, I think he lived in the 1940s and 50s. But what happened? He thought that a Hindu goddess was whispering mathematical equations into his ear. My goodness! Wow. <laughs> yeah, but you can see that the pattern is the same, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's what I'm trying to say: is that the pattern's the same, but the deities change depending on the cultural context and expectations. Exactly. For sure. Yeah. Fascinating. So in your last chapter, you describe how your friend Tyler actually became a Catholic through his experience in the Vatican archives with you in Rome, in particular with your discovery of the story of Sister Maria of Agrita's so-called bilocation experiences in the 1600s. So maybe you can tell us about that. But you also mentioned how Sister Maria's stories were put to rather cynical political ends by the Inquisition in the interest of bolstering Spain's colonial conquests, which of course went on to commit genocide, terrorize and then enslave many, many people. So you emphasize that it's not your role to determine whether or not these phenomena are real, but instead to trace their effects. So I want to end with this question. 
Due to the power that beliefs clearly have to influence people's judgment and action, do you think there's any danger in absolving believers from the responsibility to demonstrate an evidentiary basis for their beliefs? Right. So this is an excellent question. And I've been I've only been asked this once before in an interview. And it was actually the most I had I had written. This is probably the the biggest chapter, but it got edited down too much. And I think in my opinion, (laughs) and I think it got edited because I wasn't conveying um, what I wanted to convey as well as I could have. And I understand that. But what I wanted to say was this, was that um, when I got to the Vatican and I, I was there, actually, this was not the, this was not supposed to be the last chapter of the book. The, the book was actually done and sent to my editor. But when I got there and I saw Tyler, Tyler's reaction to, you know, Rome and the really the intense religiosity and dedication of especially a lot of the people at the Vatican um, observatory, because they're, they're in the space program too, you know, they're astrophysicists and things like that. And so this was a huge, huge, um, I would call it a shock to him. And also me going over the documents of this nun who believed that she was bilocating, strangely enough, to the place where we had started the book in New Mexico. And so I think that it, well, it really was odd for me. It was one of those odd coincidences and it was very odd for him. Okay. And I started to think more about Sister Maria, who I had known about for a long time, right? Because, you know, I do Catholic history. And so I thought more, and actually her first book was a cosmography of uh, where she was up in the stars looking down at the earth spinning. And so, you know, she did a lot of this kind of like what she thought was um, almost like astronomy. And so I thought that was really strange that we're ending up here at the Vatican. So we go to the Vatican secret archive, and then we move up to the observatory in Castle Gandolfo, which is about, it's in the mountains, and it's in this volcanic, uh, it's, it's next to this volcanic lake. And the popes reside there usually during the summer. It's incredibly beautiful. So we're there, and um, I'm there with brother Guy Gonsolmano, uh, Gonsolmano. He is the director and he is an acquaintance of mine. And so we get to stay there for about a week and look through their whole archives where we get to see, you know, original books from Kepler and, you know, the whole, everything that has to do with space is moved up to their archive. So we're up there and I'm starting to believe that I know for a fact, of course, that um, Maria Maria's testimony of go of believing that she was bilocating to the indigenous people of the new world in this area of New Mexico was put to use for those reasons that you said. And I, I thought, wow, against really her own decision. So she was being used. And then I thought about Tyler and I thought, you know, we're colonizing space now and Tyler's whole um, idea, you know, all of his ideas, he's like the modern day sister Maria of Agrida is what I was thinking. And so I wanted to make the case that we should be very careful about what we believe and colonizing any, any place that's, you know, like colonization. And let's think of the people who are at the very top of our space programs and the developed countries are the only countries that have enough money to have these developed space programs. So what I wanted to do, but never got to be able to do it in the book, was to kind of leave on a very political 
um, strand, I guess. However, I did. I instead I just pointed it out casually, I guess, and hope and I hope some people would pick it up. And you picked it up. So let- oh, well, I yeah. Some of my uh, my dissertation work is is actually along those themes. So I really zoomed. That's probably why I really zoomed right in on that. I want to elaborate a little bit for our listeners too, though, who maybe aren't familiar with uh, Sister Maria of Agrida. Um, so. T- Explain what bilocation is. Oh, sure, um, sure, of course. And then uh, how how the uh, church managed to or t- attempted to to use that to their advantage. Okay, so there are um, in Catholicism there are these things called charisms, and they're special gifts given to certain people who are holy. And Sister Maria was a nun, a, a Spanish nun, and she lived in the 1600s. And she basically believed she lived in a convent. Okay. So she had never been anywhere really. And so she was describing um, that she would bilocate, which means be in two places at once. So her body would be in her cell in Spain, but she would, her, another part of her body would fly through space on, she said on the wings of angels and go and basically evangelize to indigenous, the indigenous population of New Mexico. And I forgot exactly, uh, gosh, the, the name of the tribe. And they actually do have churches dedicated to her in that area of New Mexico. And so she, she believed that she was doing this. At the same time, there were, um, I think they were Jesuits there, but I can't be sure because um, I can't remember. But they were Jesuits at the same time you know, doing their missions, their mission and colonialization work for Spain. And so one of them went back, heard about the sisters um, by locations and went and talked to her in depth. And basically what he concluded and then reported to the king and, and queen of Spain was that she was actually doing this and that this was further justification of basically funding his mission to do further colonization in that area. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. And so I take that story and I kind of place it alongside Tyler's story where, you know, he's getting, you know, he's, he's a very financially able person, but he's also given a a ton of, um, of resources, not just that, but the story of, you know, non-human intelligence helping us and helping us, you know, uh, with technology. I mean, it's a very Prometheus type story that you see again and again. And so I wanted to, to bring our attention to that and to question, you know, um, the politics, I guess, of, of these stories and how they justify going into space and doing that and, you know, kind of that kind of thing. So anyway, that said, um, I do want to get to your question about, absolving people of the process of examining, you know, their religious beliefs. So um, I don't actually think that fits into what religious studies people do. So religious studies people are not absolving people. Um, In fact, I believe we're doing exactly the opposite in we're educating people about their own religion. So I'm in the South um, and I'm originally from California. And when I first got here, what I noticed was that a lot of my students didn't understand that Catholicism was actually a Christian religion, right? <laughs> so they didn't understand the very actual timeline of their own religion. And so what I do is I basically explain where, 
you know, Christianity began, that it was a non-white religion. Jesus wasn't white. And a lot of early Christians were Africans, right? And so I think when you start to explain and show evidence of where beliefs come from and religions come from, that people actually can become much more tolerant and understand that their beliefs have been solidified Say, you know, they look at the pictures of Jesus throughout the movie industry and they see Jesus as this, you know, really kind of handsome, sometimes blue eyed man who's usually European looking. And so they, they just can't sustain that after taking one of our classes. So I think that we're doing the opposite of absolving people of their, you know, claims to facts. I think what we're doing is we're um, making more complex their own belief systems. And if they can survive our classes, uh, a lot of times it gives them a lot more awe of, you know, you know, just basic life in general. I mean, it's pretty amazing that we're even here. And so that's then where we bring them into the philosophy side of things. And so, uh, so yeah. Interesting. Well, that's encouraging. It's kind of horrifying to, to think that these uh, students of yours, that these ideas would be so mind-blowing and un- unheard of to them. But thank goodness that you're bringing them this awareness. <laughs> My job is easy. All I have to do is just show the truth. And sometimes they don't believe me. And um, I've been questioned and um, I ask them I, and they say, you're using a different Bible. And I said, I invite them to bring their own Bible in. And then I show them exactly in the Bible where it says the same thing that I had told them. And, you know, then they leave, they leave a little bit, not, you know, they're, they're a little bit unhappy because their belief system has been changed, but it, then oftentimes they come back and years later and they thank me for hmm. it. Well, that's nice to hear. Um, I just yeah. have one final question about that idea. And that is if uh, in your study of this um, unusual community that believes in alien contact and UFOs and so forth, do you do you see any way that that is being mobilized for political advantage in any way? I mean, surely NASA has reasons for space exploration that go beyond anything linked quite to those motivations. Is there anything we should be that's worried generally, about? That's <laughs> generally, hey, Carrie, that's generally what we think, isn't it? I would hope so. How, you know, yeah, no, we all think that it's this very non-political, uh, this is what we do, and it's really cool and stuff like that. But uh, when people start to think about, there's a great scene in 2001, A Space Odyssey, in the very beginning, where the proto-primates, right, are or the primates throw up a bone where they, you know, the monolith is there and it looks strangely like an iPhone, by the way. And so there's this monolith. And then one of the primates beats up the other family group, throws up the bone into the air and it turns into a satellite. Okay. Now what do satellites do? Uh, some of our, some of the most major uh, organizations here in our country, which is one of the, you know the developed countries in the world, it has to do with surveillance and satellite surveillance and you know things like that. And we no longer live in the world that we lived in 30 years ago. Our privacy is completely changed. So yeah, there's a lot of things that we need to start thinking about when we think about you know Trump's new space space program. Hmm. Interesting. 
I don't mean to scare no, you. No, no. I just mean to, <laughs> I just mean to complicate your belief in NASA because if you think about it, we believe, you know, people wear NASA shirts and oh how cool that is. It's like Albert Einstein, you know, who can who can say anything bad about Albert Einstein, right? You can't say anything bad about NASA. It's like incredibly, you know, the most pure type of science that we have. But really, is it once you start to examine what what is going on with the space industry, you know, you start to see that behind the scenes, it looks a lot like religion. Huh. I have a NASA shirt. I know I do too. (laughs) Diana, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. It's been a lot of fun. Your book was a lot of fun. Uh, But before we go, tell us what you're currently working on. Okay. So my book is actually... um, it's actually been read by people who are, um, you know, um, people in Hollywood, Josh Boone read it. He loves it. Um, and one said that, uh, he just thought it was wonderful. He did, uh, what is it called? It was the, uh, the fault in our stars. And he's now working on Stephen King, a mini series, uh, for Stephen King's the stand. And he's a very talented, uh, producer and also some other interests, uh, in my book. And, and I co-owned the book with Oxford. So I actually don't make the major decisions and they're going to be making, in fact, I think they've already made a decision. So it is being optioned to do some type of TV series and I'll, I'll have more information about that. But in terms of my next book, I think I'm going to spend some time looking at the idea of how synchronicity reinforces religious belief and not just religious belief, but new age belief and, you know, the UFO belief and things like that. That's right. That's actually a topic we didn't uh, get around to was this notion of synchronicity, um, which you do uh, go into a bit in your book. Do you want to just explain to the audience what that means? Yes. So in every single, and I'm not kidding, in every single community of religious believers, and they could have been Protestants or Catholics or Muslims, Buddhists, even New Agers, and then people who believe in UFOs, um, synchronicity, you know, like this stuff where something really amazing happens that it causes you to say, wow, did that just happen? And it seems to mean that you're put on the right path of sorts. And that's how people interpret it. It happens in every single religion. And you can even see it in the Bible, like St. Paul, you know, his conversion, I'm sorry, um, Constantine, his conversion is, and that's not happening in the Bible, that's happening as he's writing the confessions. His conversion happens while he's wondering what to do. And then he hears a child or off in the distance, somebody say, take and read, take and read, take and read. He, he takes that as a sign that he needs to pick up this book in front of him and read it. And so you see what I'm saying? Like, you know, in every single belief system, the idea of synchronicity as the engine of, of religious belief is really interesting to me. So I spent some time talking about that. Yeah, just kind of that putting a lot of um, stock in coincidences, basically. Yes, yes, meaningful coincidences. Right. All right. Well, that all sounds really exciting. Good luck to you on the TV project. That sounds very exciting. Um, Yeah, thanks again for coming on the show. It was really nice to chat with you about it in person. You too, Carrie. Thank you so much. I want to thank you for listening to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Professor Diana Paselka about her new book, American Cosmic, UFOs, Religion, Technology. If you'd like to find out more, you can go to the book's website, AmericanCosmic.com, where you can read the preface, sign up for updates, and see other books by Professor Paselka. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. The New Books Network is a not-for-profit organization, so all the buzz you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. Let me know if you think you've seen a UFO, or if you might be worried about NASA's ulterior motives, or anything else. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Linland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you à la prochaine, until my next conversation about New Books in Secularism. <laughs>